0: Asexuality? Isn't that something to do with plants? Hello, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. A weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the why's behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture beyond the brochure. It's been a while, but that's because of technical issues my end. My laptop went in for repair, so in the meantime I was using my old desktop, which goes through phases of internet connectivity, and for about a week and a half I had connection speeds that were challenging for cutting edge. In about 1994, making uploads of 16 meg podcast sound files particularly pointless. My laptop's now come back, but they had to replace the hard drive, which means I've had to reinstall everything. Ugh. It hasn't just been hardware I've had issues with recently. I had some problems on my website as well. Firstly, people visiting using a mobile phone seem to be seeing old versions of my pages. I made some updates to my categories and added a few new posts, and while it was working fine on the laptop, it seems they weren't registering at all on the mobiles. The posts, and indeed the categories, were available if you typed in the URLs directly, but you couldn't see them in the home page. A second issue I noticed was Google Analytics wasn't reporting on visitors to some parts of my site and I tested this by both me and one of my virtual friends going onto my site and clicking on various specific pages. Not only were these pages not appearing in my Pages Visited or Landing Pages reporting on Google Analytics but real-time reporting wasn't showing us as, well, existing at all. While it makes logical sense that GA can't report on page views if someone can't get to a page it turns out these were two separate problems caused by plugins and you may need to know this in case you have a similar problem. The first, pages not being seen on mobiles, was because I'd recently added a plugin to my site called Hummingbird, designed to improve the speed of my pages render at because nobody likes a slow website. One of the options is to allow the site to store a cached page for mobile users to save them having to wait for a new one to load. I'm sure you can guess what happened. Yep, yeah, I'd not clicked one of the options correctly in the setup so it was waiting for me to manually clear the plugin's cache rather than doing what I expected it to do, which was to automatically clear the cache when I make edits to the page. This has now been changed, but regular checking will be done to ensure this doesn't happen again. The other posts seemed to be that Google Analytics itself had stopped recording on almost all of my posts for... I think it's because I removed an unnecessary plugin that I wasn't using, the one that allows me to see GA data on my WordPress dashboard, because I just view it in the GA website anyway. Unfortunately, one of the side effects of this seems to have been removing the GA code from my web pages. Dull. You'd have thought it would have removed it from every page, and I'd end up with no visitors, but apparently not. My posts on Vanuatu were being recorded, as was one post on day trips from Perth, Australia. But, and this is the peculiar thing, nearly 50% of all my website visitors were recorded as having viewed specifically one post about my first wild camp experience in spring 2019. Now, I don't know if this was reflective of the easing of lockdown at the time, coupled with it being reasonably good weather, so people experimenting more with things like going hiking for the first time and spending a night in a tent because they don't trust hotels, but I'd like to think they're taking something useful out of my post. Which, as an aside, isn't an entirely positive one. Basically, I walked too far and could barely move by the end of the two days. Had never set up my tent before, so it was all a complete mess in the dark and I nearly froze to death. Oh, and I forgot to take anything to light my camping stove with. Other than that, it went pretty well. Anyway, it's all sorted now, and I'm seeing some weird things on my website, including a recent huge influx of South Africans searching for posts on apartheid and discrimination in South Africa. I don't know if it's been on some kind of school exam or something... It is really interesting to see what people are searching for. More dedicated bloggers would be all over the SEO on this and making posts updating old posts to take people's searches into account. I am not. Because I'm not that sort of travel blogger. Or indeed a travel blogger at all, let's be honest. I've been doing a bit of catch-up with my recent posts. I am a couple of podcast episode show notes pages behind, mainly because my computer's broken, and I've also been writing some posts about my past adventures in Australia. My roast recent have been about Western Australia, including talking about wildflowers, pink lakes, and how my attitudes towards Perth and Fremantle have changed in the four years since I had between the visits. It's an interesting part of the world and definitely worth checking out, although, due to COVID regulations, if you're not there now, you're not allowed to get there, alas. Instead, my friend Shelley has written about it lots on com, while my podcast buddy Amanda Kendall at NotAballerina.com has been posting several episodes recently telling tales about her recent explorations. It feels weird to hear her talk about adventures in places that I've also been to. My most recent blog posts, though, have been all about sexuality. Specifically, asexuality, obviously, as that's the way my attraction goes. Or doesn't, by definition. But you know what I mean. The last week in October was Ace Week, formally and more formally known as Asexual Awareness Week. I'd have done this podcast in time for then, but, as I say, technical issues... One of the podcasts I listen to is all about asexuality and takes a sideways glance at life through that lens. It's called Sounds Fake But Okay, and it's hosted by. An arrow is, girl. I'm Sarah. That's me. And a demi straight girl. That's me, Kayla. Anyway, they have a Discord server that I'm often to be found on. Hi. I'm the world's oldest Gen Zer. And everyone in there had been talking about creating some kind of document repository for all things about asexuality. It kind of kickstarted my brain, and within three days, I'd written six posts. I purposefully wrote them not as resource material – there's enough of that online written by people far better explaining terms and nuances than I am, people who are more knowledgeable about different aspects of asexuality too. I'm not grey romantic, for instance, it's not for me to tell you what that means. Rather, what I wrote was partly my own experiences of being asexual, what the term means to me and how the concept has developed through my life, and partly some of the history and culture behind it, or at least as I see it. It does show what I can do when I'm inspired, which doesn't happen very often. Incidentally, I also contributed a spoken piece to the Sounds Fake But Okay live webcam cast for their podcast celebrating Ace Week. Apparently I have a smoothing voice. Who knew? Anyway, these posts. Apart from a general overview post on how I came to realise my sexuality and what it means, and importantly, what it doesn't mean. Yes, I don't imagine bonking you because I don't have that sexual attraction to you. Yes, I will bonk you if you wanted me to, but I'm forewarning you now it won't be anywhere near as pleasurable as you imagine it to be. Yes, I know it's an unusual thing to feel, but that doesn't in any way make my experiences invalid. No, I'm clearly not a closeted homosexual. Yes, I do find you aesthetically attractive, but I find paintings by Monet and Gauguin aesthetically attractive, but that doesn't mean I want to bonk the bridge over a pond of water lilies. The other posts are on different aspects of asexuality and culture. One of them, for instance, is on asexuality, pride and representation, where I do my usual rant about the asexual pride flag being slightly boring, which I first spoke about in my podcast on sexuality while travelling. And indeed another post that I wrote goes into travelling as an asexual in detail too. But with regard to Pride, I then go on to talk about how there's not a lot of asexual representation in either media or reality, with very few asexual role models or character representations, and how most of the asexual activists are mid-twenties or younger, and I'll talk about this later in this pod. I then follow up that post with a post about how and why there are so few older asexuals, at least from a British standpoint, because of slow development of sexual orientation awareness, Section 28, and our years of experience of blending in and passing as heterosexual in society which I touch on again later as well. Another post that talks about my personal experiences is one on dating as an asexual and on the concept of aromanticism, of not experiencing romantic attraction either. I'll talk about what I look for in relationships and why it's quite hard to determine what romance is, as what could be romantic to one person, for example holding hands, could be normal standard platonic behaviour to another, which it is to me. And again, I talk about this in passing later on. The final post, which I do not talk about later on in this podcast, because, you know, TMI, is on asexuality and kink. I had trouble sourcing the right and appropriate pictures for this one. It's a concept that many people find sexual. And I mean, I can kind of understand that perfectly. You're doing deep and arguably intimate things with someone. You're having to trust them deeply. If you get it right, you can almost see their soul. But if you don't experience sexual attraction to someone that that doesn't mean that you can't experience different but equally intense feelings from similar play with friends. I do talk about, though, the problem with allonormativity. There's a word you've probably not heard much before, in that it assumes that everyone wants a sexual relationship and everything that we do is geared up to that end. So in especially in such an intense atmosphere as Kink, it confuses people when you don't. Allonormativity, by the way, is the word used To describe the concept that everyone feels both sexual and romantic attraction, and that that is the right thing to be. It's a more general concept than heteronormativity, which assumes everyone in society is heterosexual. Allonormativity assumes everyone in society is sexual, and the flavour, fish, cheese, iron, whatever, doesn't matter. I wouldn't ever consider myself an asexual activist or indeed an activist for any of my political, social, economic or cultural viewpoints, I'm far too lazy for that. Also, I don't really like being personally involved in conflict. But while so few other people are out and talking about this, I think it's important that I do. Others are talking about this far more and far better than I, but we all do what we can, I guess. What I am going to do on this podcast episode, though, is talk a bit more about a couple of these aspects in a bit more depth. So let me start by telling you how I discovered asexuality and how I felt growing up. Well, I won't know for sure unless, is a phrase I've used before. Now, this may well be a very strong case of too much information, but that's pretty much the primary reason I ended my virginity. We won't mention drunken encounters with women over twice my age a couple of years earlier that didn't result in penetrative sex, but I did end up with genitalia sore from overuse that night. Sorry, did I say too much information? Whoops. Anyway, I won't say lost my virginity, because I know exactly when and where and why it happened. It was in the bedroom of the house I was renting as a post-student to a lady who'd been dropping strong hints for the previous eight months. I was twenty and a half years old. Yeah, I know, that's a bit late. And it was something I'd always been avoiding, because I didn't think it was going to be something I'd enjoy or be any good at. But I figured I might as well, you know, try it, just in case I was wrong. Listeners, I was not wrong. When I was 17, I kept a diary, as most teenagers did, and still conforming, I wrote down details of all the crushes I had on people that I liked. Despite going to an all-boys school, most of my friends at the time were girls. I had quite a lot of pen pals and I enjoyed the connection that I had with them, that feeling of being close yet also at a safe distance. They used to ask me questions of the kind of, why are boys? Assuming that, you know, I'd be able to answer, but Even then, I knew I wasn't quite the same as the ones that they were snogging. Though some of them I did develop little weird crushes on. When I wrote about them in my diary, it was clear in hindsight that I tended towards the asexual spectrum. I wish I was holding her hand. I want to hug her. But also, I don't ever imagine having sex with them, though. I guess I should have realised it then. But of course, back in the 1990s, the word asexuality didn't really exist. Or at least it wasn't common knowledge. And in any case, because it wasn't something that really bothered me, I never really thought about it. It just wasn't important. Sex just it wasn't on my radar. It was not something I considered doing. It was always something though that was lurking in the background of my relationships, and it meant that none of them ever really developed much beyond the honeymoon stage. Note that I have been engaged three times. The latter two were more hope beyond expectation than anything truly life-affirming. Also, they're probably both listening to this. Uh, note also that both of them I'm still friends with, Indeed, I'm friends with most of my exes, and maybe for this reason, my dismissal of sex being as relatively unimportant means that there ends up being very little difference between friends and relationships, so most of the latter come from and quickly return to the former. I've mentioned, for example, my friend Amy before. She's the lady I've cat-sat for in the past. I used to date her. Uh, We broke up at some point between 2016 and 2018, not quite sure when. Anyway, she assumes that I'm gay. And this feels like quite a common issue amongst asexuals. And while I may have dabbled in that arena, yum yum sausage, I find naked men even less appealing than naked women. It's interesting watching programmes like Naked Attraction. She objects to the concept of finding people to date based purely on what they look like, even if you know you'll be naked with each other later. Well, I just don't find nakedness attractive in and of itself anyway. One of my other friends recently pointed out something I do when I'm faced with nudity. I forgot I did this, but it is so on brand. If someone's getting undressed or something in front of me and end up showing off a bit more bare flesh than they ought to, I've been told I have a habit of removing my glasses and passively cleaning them while looking down. My friend pointed out that this serves two purposes. One, that I'm not looking at them, but actively looking in other directions, distancing myself and distracting myself. But also two, my eyesight is so bad that the sheer act of removing my glasses means I'd probably not be able to make anything out anyway. I don't think about this, but when she said it, I kind of realised that yes, I'd do exactly that. It's almost like an innate and automatic reaction. Nakedness makes me feel awkward, instinctively, as I was brought up both heterosexual and polite. I know I shouldn't be looking at parts of naked bodies anyway, but I suspect it's my asexuality that makes me actively avoid them. Note that there is a huge difference between asexuality and celibacy, the latter being the choice of refraining from sex, regardless of sexual attraction, while the former is someone having little or no sexual attraction in the first place, but not necessarily refraining from sex. It's often confused in the mainstream, but, if we're going to invoke another stereotype, if members of religious orders were asexual as well as celibate, the Catholic Church's PR department would be a lot less busy. The thing is, I'm very sex-positive, I love talking about sex. I like sexual-themed comedy. I'm British. We had an entire film industry dedicated to the new endo. And I've even written erotic literature at times, although most of it has a kink focus rather than a sex focus. I also am a strong believer in sexual openness, that people should talk about sex more, that it shouldn't be a taboo subject hidden behind walls of metaphor only to be discussed at 11 o'clock in the evening on Channel 4. This includes all sexualities and genders as well as their lacking. Fun fact, the last person I kissed was my friend Lix, who I was travelling with this time last year, actually. Lix is an agender lesbian. We are so not each other's target market. But the act itself, the physical and emotional concept, is one I find really hard to even think about, never mind to actually do. Sex positive, but quite personally, sex averse. Anyway, I seem to have veered slightly off kilter there. Um, as I say, my relationships have mostly been hope beyond expectation. I've always known there was something different about me, but could never quite put into words what it was, other than a general disinterest in sex. I tended to phrase it such like, I don't like sex, which, while broadly true in the stricter sense, lacks a lot of nuance. I do enjoy some sexual activities, but having those detailed conversations often feels just that little bit too awkward, so it was the easiest way to describe me. It's a bit like the way some people say I don't like milk or I don't like sweet things when in foreign cultures rather than trying to explain lactose intolerance or nut allergies. It wasn't until I read an article in the Guardian newspaper in I would say about 2011 or 2012 that I first came across the word asexual and it resonated with me. The more I thought about it over the years afterwards the more I was comfortable taking the word on as my own. It just made so much sense that there was a word I could finally use that described me enough detail to be meaningful. A lack of sexual attraction. It's something that's not important or necessary for me in order to get close to someone. I had also discovered the word quirky alone, which is a more... I suppose I'd say a, an allonormative word, but it basically means... I'm not going to actively seek out a relationship for the sake of a relationship. I'm happy being single until the right person comes along, which is how I always saw myself until I realised that asexuality was a thing and that it existed. Anyway, that's my discovery, but I am a little unusual in the community. See, on that Discord server I mentioned earlier, there was a survey on the membership. 136 people replied, and it turns out I was the third oldest person who responded. 89% of the respondents were under 30, indeed 70% were Generation Z, two whole generations down from me. The survey asked in terms of age bandings rather than specific age, so I don't have a value for mean age. Partly this may be of course because Discord itself is a young person tool, though it has the look and feel of IRC from 20 years ago, so it's not like Generation X's are unclear on the concept. Also, we properly built it. However, if we look at the wider community, we see the same kind of pattern. The leading asexual activists and promoters tend to be younger. Yasmin Benoit, arguably the most notable asexual figure, was born in 1996. Most of the other leading and notable activists, for example, the two ladies running sounds fake but okay, the YouTuber Slice of Ace, the comedian Elliot Simpson, they're all the same age or slightly younger. We're talking the top edge of Generation Z here. And this is great. It means upcoming generations have role models to relate to already and a community of peers that proves that they're valid. So going forward, asexuals and related orientations should never feel lost, alone or confused about whether they're just odd or not and therefore never face the same issues like, that people like me faced. But where are the people like me? Where are all the older asexuals? See, it's likely we do simply what gay men did previously. We hide in plain sight. We mouth the words, we go through the motions of a normal life, despite not being happy in ourselves, despite knowing it felt wrong, but feel we're not able to do anything about it. How many loveless marriages were entered into? How many people married just for the show, not for the love or connection? As I keep saying, asexuals can have sex, and some even enjoy it, but by not experiencing sexual attraction they would have felt stuck in a heterosexual dystopia and not free to express their own identity. Among the older generation, especially those who have been in long-term marriages, having now been introduced to the word asexuality, there's a little confusion over what it means, over how you know you're asexual rather than just, well, comfortably indifferent to sex. Think of being married for 20 years. People often don't have the urge anymore. But that's not what asexuality is, remember. It's not about how much sex you have or don't have, or about how much sexual attraction you experience. And yes, if you've been married 20 years and have sex once a week, you could be asexual. But it's more likely you still have sexual attraction to your partner, you just don't have the urge to act on it frequently. Or maybe even you don't have sexual attraction to your partner anymore, but you do have sexual attraction to, shall we say, other people. Ooh, I've bonked to the secretary. There's a 1970s cliché for you. You'd rather eat cake because it's easier than having sex, not because you don't have the attraction to sex. So what can we do? Do we encourage more Generation X, and maybe even boomers, to come out as asexual? Will it make a difference? I mean, one might argue it's not as important to come out by the time you reach your 30s even. Your life has veered down a particular path by then, and maybe people think it's too late to change course. Or, "Ah, if I were younger I'd have known, well what's the point now? Or even, I've got this far, I can cope. Or, but what will my family, what will my descendants think if I changed now? Is it even relevant to me? I've been in a relationship for, you know, X number of years. There's also the thought society has conditioned us into our heteronormativity. So maybe we don't feel that we belong, that we're kind of appropriating asexual culture and ideas for our own benefit. Maybe too we might ourselves believe we're simply going through a midlife crisis in the same way that youngsters are experimenting just after puberty. Previous generations bought motorbikes, discovered their author credentials and took up crochet. If we started saying, it's okay to be asexual, Would we start to see an increase of numbers of people getting divorced and deciding to, I don't know, take up ultra-running or spoon-whittling in the forest or something? Because fewer of us have come out, there's fewer role models to see. If all the little asexual representation there is is at the younger end of the age spectrum, will anyone even believe us? Because, you know, people our age don't do that sort of thing. In a way, it's like the chicken and egg scenario. Without the representation, we're not going to come out. But if we don't come out, there'll be no representation. This also means by coming out, it's much harder to relate, so there's no reference point. What does coming out mean in the context of an older asexual? How do we explain it without a 30-minute TED talk each time, especially to our peers who've been brought up in the same environments? We don't have the same support networks that younger people have. Representation and communities are on places like Discord, Tumblr and YouTube, whereas people my age are more likely to hang out on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, there are of course benefits of coming out. You know, the feeling of being free at last to be yourself, the realisation of why previous relationships haven't worked out, self-awareness, realisation of why you act the way you do and just maybe if there is a community you'll fit in regardless of age and the more people like you that there are the bigger the community and the bigger the spirit. In my experience the communities I've found haven't had a problem with me being old even if some of them are made up with people you know 30 years younger than me. I don't know how I'd have felt at the age of 15 if someone 30 years older than me was in my social group, but in a way it's kind of useful. They appreciate my experiences and their discoveries, their activism, helped me with mine. I was on BBC Radio Sheffield talking about this at the end of Ace Week, actually. I had about six or seven minutes on the afternoon show on the Friday, 30th of October, so if you're listening to this pod before about 30th of November 2020, you can listen to it again. It's on the BBC website, and if you're not, it's probably gone forever. That week, I'd also attended a large video conference all about asexuality at the organisation I work for. There were maybe 50 people who turned up, mostly aged 30 plus, and a couple of them said they'd never seen or met, shall we say, so many aces before, and it was really comforting for them. Also at work, I'd co-written a post for their internal intranet homepage, kind of like an Asexuality 101, which saw quite a few praising comments, and several people messaged us privately, telling us the post had been significant in their understanding of their own selves, that what we'd written made so much sense to them, and they too would look into asexuality more. But they weren't ready to come out yet. The thing with coming out, with asexuality as with any other, shall we say, queer orientation, is that it's very definitely against the norm. The word queer itself originally meant exactly that, unusual, different, and while asexuals don't have the open discrimination visible against gays, lesbians and trans, we have our own issues, both from within and out with the LGBTQI community. The main one is obvious. We live in a highly sexualized world, and the idea of asexuality itself confuses people, possibly frightens them. It sometimes feels that the whole concept of not having sexual attraction doesn't even make sense to the average person in the street, Think of the books you read, the TV shows and movies you watch, the celebrities you follow, the brands you buy into. They all seem to promote the idea of two people being together with the underlying subtext of sex. Heteronormativity is assumed, the commonly held belief that a man and a woman can never be just friends, for instance. But regardless of orientation, the world always feels like it's geared to the idea of coupling. And that anyone who doesn't want to pair off, well, there's something wrong with them, or they're trying to hide something. Unlike many asexuals, my sex positive means my major irk with this is its lack of consistency and its over-reliance on sexual stereotypes rather than on the existence of a sexualized society in itself. But it still irks me. Thus, most of the time, reactions tend to be not so much offensive as dismissive. Asphobia, in that sense, is really geared to people genuinely fearing of us, but more on the lines of pity, almost. One of the most common phrases people say is, Ah, you just haven't found the right person yet when I point out that I'm not that interested in having a committed relationship. The belief is that everyone has the one, a soulmate, and if I keep myself open and looking, I'll eventually find them. People believe that they're being positive and we shouldn't feel down about it. Keen-eyed listeners will remember that I say I've been engaged thrice. You'd have thought that at the time, I truly believed that I had found the one. I've also heard the same comment when people hear I'm not fond of sex, It's easier with the right person, you'll see, without heading into more TMI territory. I mean, it's a bit late for that, but still. Even with the one person I can say I loved above all others, it wasn't. The opposite view, of course, also happens. Are you broken? Have you tried therapy? Did you have a bad childhood? Suggesting that we're only asexual as a reaction to something bad that happened in the past that we're actively trying to avoid being reminded of. I can confirm that while I am currently in therapy largely to resolve issues I've had as a result of issues within my teenage years, none of those are in any way sexual in nature. Similarly, younger asexuals than me often hear, oh it's still a phase, you'll get over it. Which is, you know, pretty invalidating. Doubly so when you see just how much heteronormative marketing people are exposed to from an early age. Apparently 12 is too young to know you're trans, gay or asexual but not too young to have a gender-appropriate partner lined up for you by your parents every time you mention their name as a friend. To be neutral, my mother still does this. While I think she's finally given up expecting me to produce grandchildren, she still wonders if she needs to buy a hat for an upcoming wedding every time I mention a female name. That most of my friends are female is something that I think confuses her anyway. Sometimes people, and yes, I storm me on my mother, hello mother, you are listening to this, I know you're listening to this, I am subtweeting you. You don't know what that means. Look it up. We'll phrase the same thing in what seems like a more neutral way. When are you going to settle down? Often due to my travel fetish, in conjunction with Are you just getting it out of your system? It's still the same question, implying that my sexuality is a phase, an invalid selection, and one day I'll come to my senses and return to the standards that society has set. Conversely, within the LGBTQI community, there's another criticism sometimes levelled against asexuals that because we're not actively discriminated against, we're not deserving of a place in the community. Again, I talked about this in my sexuality while travelling episode a couple of years back. By active discrimination, I mean it's very hard to pass a law saying that asexuality is illegal, whereas gays and lesbians can't even walk down the street holding hands with their lover in many countries in the world, never mind rent hotel rooms together, and in places people can be denied benefits or be sacked from their job, or worse, because of their sexual identity. Being asexual, conversely, is seen as being no different from being single, Odd, pitiable, but not something to fear for your life with. In addition, because of this, it means we can far more easily pass a cishet. But we shouldn't have to pass. We should be able to be as open about our sexuality as everybody else. And as I've explained, we are discriminated against. It's just that most of it is social and cultural discrimination, rather than political or economic discrimination. At other times, weirdly though, being asexual can be a positive... I mentioned earlier that most of my friends are women. In part, this is because I get on better with women than men, for reasons partly related to toxic masculinity, but mainly because, well, I don't really know why, but I just seem to connect better with women. And because of my asexuality, whether they're aware of it, accepted or not, it's certainly true they don't see me as being any kind of threat. To an extent, I'm their stereotype gay best friend, without actually being gay. Indeed, one of my long-term friends said... If anyone ever asks me if there's a man I'm not dating I feel comfortable in a changing room with or if my head was on their lap, it's Ian. The one constant is the assumption amongst people that sexual relations are normal or even expected and also that they're considered enjoyable. Part of me wonders if this is just a lie perpetuated by society, culture and the media and that people say they like it because that's what's expected of them, that they're supposed to, so they do. I wonder how many nominally sexual people genuinely enjoy it And how many merely tolerate it out of expectation and duty? Not tonight, I've got a headache. And how couples who have been married for over a decade seem to lose the urge. If even sexual people go through times of lacking desire and sexual attraction, why is it so difficult to consider that for some people that's the default original state? All of this also, of course, doesn't mean that I wouldn't date. But again, we, well, I, may have a different definition of dating to most people these days. What is a date anyway? Anyway. I've never quite known what a date is, since, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, most of the activities that people consider doing on a date are things me and my female friends have done just on a whim anyway, and we don't really think about anything untoward about them. Pubs, concerts, meals, theatres, they're great places for two friends to go just as much as two would-be lovers. It would be perfectly natural for me to arrange to meet a friend and go to a restaurant with them. I don't have to eat their mouth for dessert. Indeed, over time I've realised that some things sound better in my head than they are in real life. bit like this podcast. Like kissing. I love the idea of kissing. I think it's really fabulous and intimate and pleasurable. Except whenever I get around to doing it, I'm often left with a feeling of, well, is that it? I have the same thoughts about pizza. It's something that sounds great when you're talking about it, you build up the expectation for it, but when you come to have it, it's usually a bit of a letdown. Oh, but you just haven't eaten the right pizza. Mate, I've eaten a lot of pizza and I've had a lot of kisses. Neither excite me as much as they do to most people. I'm not even fond of being touched that much. I mean, there are exceptions. As I say, I love holding hands and I like hugging, from friendly greeting hugs to long cuddles on the sofa. And let's not talk about how ticklish my feet are. But in general, I've realised I'm not as tactile as I thought I was. I noticed this in my last relationship when my partner would give me back rubs in bed and I tended to just lie there feeling slightly more indifferent than I know I should have done. I do like touching, though. I'm more than happy to give other people back rubs, foot rubs, massages, etc. But again, I do these things with my friends. I act around friends the way many people may act around their lovers or their partners. So I hold hands with friends, I hug friends, I'll give massages to friends, because it's a nice and pleasant thing to do with and for them. I've even gone travelling with friends, shared restaurant evenings and hotel rooms with them. So when I think about future relationships, that's kind of what I imagine. Yes, to spend my life in some way with someone I can talk with late into the evening, sharing darkest secrets while cuddling on the sofa, have candlelit dinners with and hold hands with walking down the street. Not gardening, though. I have my limits. But equally, there'd also be someone that has their own separate life, their own friends, their own lovers, maybe. I'm fully aware that most people are inherently more sexual than I am, so I'd imagine, nay, expect, any friends I have to have their sexual needs met elsewhere. The relationship we'd have would be one born out of friendship rather than any kind of exclusive romantic attraction or commitment. We'd both have other friends with no thought that these friends couldn't be just as close as we would be. Anything and everything we'd do together would be because we were close enough friends to do them and there'd be no sexual subtext or feeling that either of us were expecting anything more out of the relationship than we were doing. It may not surprise you to know we have a name for this. Queer platonic relationships or QPRs not to be confused with the association football team of the same name. It's a fairly simple name. Queer, because, well, we are and they are. Platonic, because they're based on friendship rather than romance. And relationship, because, well, what else are they? That said, as long as the people involved are comfortable with the arrangement and communicate their needs and expectations clearly, it probably doesn't matter what it's called. A QPR to one person could be simply friendship to another, and yet deep romantic love to a third. But if they're both happy with it together, then it works. Finding this, of course, is tricky. Traditional dating sites and apps are mostly geared to sexual cultures, not just in terms of admin. Few dating sites have an asexual option, never mind aromantic, but also in terms of the people who use them. There's an expectation that if you're signed up to one, you're there to develop some kind of romantic or sexual relationship, you know, something that includes sex, because that's... Isn't that the whole point of dating? Unless the other person is also, you know, asexual, aromantic, whatever, which, given you can't usually sign up as asexuals and have to put it in the profile, so, you know, nobody reads profiles anymore, it's pretty unlikely, to be honest. There are asexual and aromantic-specific dating sites. I haven't used any yet. Obviously, any social site can be a dating site with enough determination. It's three parts squick and one part, oh, bless your naivety and overblown self-worth, when people slide into your DMs on sites like Instagram with a, hey. And even forum sites like Reddit can be used to flirt. But from my end, I'd argue the best way to find friends on the internet is to use any sites in the manner and purpose for which they were intended. If you click with someone through it, then fabulous. I have a couple of close friends I met because we connected through LiveJournal and then developed our friendships over time elsewhere. Similarly, I've got some very special people in my life that I know through Twitter, with whom I very definitely have a platonic relationship. This doesn't mean, of course, that I still don't have crushes or squishes, which is, you know, the asexual equivalent. They're exactly what you'd expect. Feelings inside when you think of someone that makes you kind of giddy, that gives you a sense of excitement when you see their name coming online or having liked one of your tweets or something. And that imagining being physically next to makes you either get really excited or a little bit lost in longing. It's a little bit like teenage crushes on pop stars and actors, but confused by the fact that you really do know this person and this could potentially happen. My personal issue here, though, is that the people I have a squish on and the people I'd be comfortable in the QPR with aren't necessarily the same. And it's hard to align the two sometimes. In part, this is because I can't explain why. I mean, even if you're standardly romantically and sexual, sometimes you can't explain why you crush on someone who's obviously not even right for you. Now, imagine how annoying it is in my position. It's not that I want to do more with them than I would want to do with someone who's just a close friend, just that I think it's best explained by saying I want to do more of it. Like, I want them more. Not more than other people, but more often than other people. And I'm more likely to overthink how I talk with them, worry about whether anything I say will irk them, worry about how I come across to them in the same way that someone may do if they fancy someone but are too shy to say so. And if I sit down and think logically about them, They'll often be with people with whom I'm less likely to have a successful QPR because they're more sexual than I am, more romantic, more into traditional relationships, more likely to need exclusivity, with that level of intense intimacy and emotion. That was not a subtweet. Oh wait, yes it was. Ultimately, I'm stuck with having squishes on people who aren't right for me, for whom I'm not enough. It's not that I'm not good enough, not at all, it's just what I offer isn't enough for what they personally need. So, we're still good close friends, but I'm worry about being as close as I'd like to be, just in case they take it the wrong way and pull away. I'd rather have a friend I can't hold hands with but would want to than someone who used to be a friend because I pushed down that line too far and it all went awry because feelings are weird, Of course, trying to explain this entire concept to people like my mother is understandably difficult. most allosexuals, especially of her generation grew up to believe that a man and a woman can't be just friends and there always has to be something more between them. If I turned up on their doorstep holding hands with a woman and said oh no we're just friends she simply wouldn't be able to process this. I know this because it kind of happened. In summary being asexual is just who I am it doesn't define me and nor is it the sum total of my personality but equally it is an important part of how I live my life. I guess now just feels like the right time to be fully open and talking about it. (laughs) Well, that's about all for this episode. You may be surprised to know, and now I have my laptop back, I can do them properly, I have plans for the next three podcasts. One's going to be the long-delayed pod about alcohol around the world that isn't beer. One's going to be on part of the peak district called Kinder Scout. And one's going to be on the delightful topic of traditional British seaside resorts. I have no idea in which order these three are going to be, but they are going to be the next three, unless something interesting happens in the meantime. If you want to contribute to them, don't hesitate to drop me a line. Until then, viva la revolution! And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Sheffield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at backpackercom Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.